The spelunking adventure, it must be said, has lost its initial attraction. Or for that matter, any attraction. This is no place for me, the Choker. Squeezing through wet stone seams, slugging through mud, ruining my jumpsuit. All of this is fine for some, but not a man of my tastes and upbringing. <laughs> this last phrase cracks him up, because the version of his pre-Joker existence that he's chosen to remember doesn't involve much taste or much upbringing. Uh-oh. There's something moving in the dark. What's so funny? Um, well, it's... It's hard to explain. Uh, one of those you had to be there kind of jokes. First thing you learn when doing stand-up is that none of your audience was ever there. Where? There. If, for example, I were to tell someone about this uh, meeting, assuming something funny happens, which is nearly always the case, would you agree? They wouldn't find it funny in the same way because they weren't here. So the trick is to make the telling itself funny, and to make yourself funny. So, there you have it. A theory of comedy from a once and future comedian. Does it satisfy you? Uh -huh. eh, different strokes. You're not really in my target demographic anyway. The Joker detects a hint of something visible. A huge man-shaped outline that moves away into the darkness. The Joker seizes the opportunity to use this hulking sourpuss as a guide. Wherever he's going, it beats here. The Joker follows, careful to keep his distance. In his time as villain and Arkham resident, he has developed something of a sixth sense when it comes to the presence of menace, and all those warning bells are going off. The longer he follows this behemoth along a winding passage, which seems to be climbing, at least he hopes so, the clearer his sense that he needs to tread very lightly, lest he come to grief. After a while, this nervousness slows him down enough that he loses all sense of the stranger, which would be fine if he weren't still in the middle of a cave somewhere between Gotham City and... where? Who knew? A new start in New York might be fun, although he can't imagine that this cave goes that far. And he's long since lost his sense of direction. And let's be honest, since his chemical rebirth, he finds that the only place he's really comfortable is Gotham City. Still, if he suddenly finds himself poking his head out of a manhole cover on Avenue A, he'll at least be a good long way from Arkham Asylum. It might be smart to stay away while he gathers his wits for a new Gotham City routine. Start spreading the news! <gasps> the Joker shuts his mouth, which is difficult for a man of his revised physiognomy, but he does it, and he's glad because the sounds he's hearing could only be coming from one thing. Bats! <laughs> it's too much. The irony's killing him, because the bats are locals here. And if they're stirring, they'll be leaving, which means night is falling, and he's been down here a full day, and if he's lucky, he'll be able to follow them. Get it? The bats will leave me out so I can get the Batman. It's too perfect! Then he shuts his mouth again, and realizes that the bats are all around him, and they're starting to move. He loses track of time a little after that. When Jack and Apes is honest with himself, he realizes that his sense of time isn't always too reliable, or what might be more to the point is that it's reliable, but just not quite in tune with everyone else's. He skips along another passage in the cave, that's above and around him in a storm of fluttering little rodent-smelling bodies. So sorry, little Chiroptrans! Come back! Really! I'm harmless! <laughs> Who put that stalagmite there? <laughs> Is there anything better than a good pratfall? And that's two beauties today. Buster Keaton, eat your heart out. He wonders where the bats all went. Hmm. Well, they must have gone somewhere. Or that guano came from somewhere. The only thing to do is start looking. He feels along the wall, the floor, eventually the ceiling where he can reach it. And bingo, his hand finds a hole. If one can dignify such a minimal aperture with the name hole... 
Well, thank goodness I maintained my girlish figure during my period of rest. With that, he's up and into the hole, legs dangling in what must be a genuinely comical fashion, before he catches his heel on the same rock that dented his forehead, and pushes on. There's light ahead. Real light. Worthy of a bad novel about near-death experiences, it's calm, pale, suffusing the low passage ahead of him with a positively Empyrean gleam. <gasps> What's this? He follows it, wide-eyed and ablaze with curiosity, and then he sees what lies at its end. Oh, my stars and garters! I've died and gone to heaven! The first thing he lays his eyes on is the car. <gasps> Low, matte black with one-way windows, it crouches back against the far wall, as if ready to spring. The Joker remembers this car, the way it appeared out of nowhere, from under the reservoir in Robinson Park, at the very moment when what he has come to think of as his audition, well, he didn't get the part, as they say, but he is right now preparing for his callback. But how does it get out? He looks, and looks, and there... He sees a pair of great steel doors on the other side of the cave, which must be, as P.T. Barnum would have put it, the egress. Quite a stylish entrance that particular automobile must make. Tearing his eyes away from the car, although his hands are already itching to drive it, and oh my, is there a punchline there? He looks around. There, in a frame that looks like you could use it to pull an engine block, is a bat suit. <laughs> The Joker's stomach does a little flip. On polished stainless steel shelving next to the Batsuit, he counts one, two, three utility belts, two pairs of boots, and a truly stupefying array of gear. Most of it he can't identify, but there are grappling hooks, a little bat shuriken doohickeys, whose sting he can still feel along his arms and chest, and hoo-hoo, what's this over there? An elevator door. The world expands its horizons as the Joker realizes that all he has to do to discover the identity of his nemesis is walk right up, press the button, and see where this elevator lets him off. For a moment he wishes he were a bat, or at least a passenger pigeon, so he'd have the kind of sense of direction that would survive his trip back through the cave. Where am I? He can't stand not knowing. It's... Oh. It's like that last piece of candy that you're just a little afraid to ask for, since you know you'll love it, but it might come back to haunt you. Oh, what I could do if I knew your name. The jokes I could play, the fun we could have. We could have fun that is funny. But no! What would happen to the spice of the interaction, its supreme animosity, its superheated mono-a-mono -mono quality, if he knew who Batman was? and could not return the favor. Play fair. What's good for the bat is good for the Joker. So he will not. But oh, the knowing that the answer is right there. Sweet longing fills him. And then goes away. As his eyes fall on a broad work table and a row of lucite cubes arranged against the wall. <gasps> could it be that I am seeing with my own very eyes, shelled with care befitting a museum exhibit? <gasps> My favorite corsage. <sighs> it's too good to be true. He's a kid at Christmas, a babe in Toyland, a returning sailor seeing the familiar red light district of home. Everywhere he looks, there are goodies, and every one of them belongs to Batman. The Joker's shoulders are trembling with the effort of holding in his laughter. It was quite an irony that Bat should have led him out of his subterranean wilderness, yes. But to have them lead him to the sanctum sanctorum of his arch-foe? Wonderful! Whoever Batman is during the day, he's been a busy little bat. Dust hangs in the air, and large piles of rocks lie in out-of-the-way corners. Power equipment lies everywhere, and the Joker can see the beginnings of a fine laboratory hideaway beginning to emerge. He's tempted to move right in, play chemist for a while again, be the mockingbird in the bat's nest. But no, the joke there would only be on Batman. Why play for those stakes when I can have my fun with not just Batman, but every unsuspecting nincompoop in Gotham City as well? Ooh. <laughs> An idea takes shape in his head, and he likes it. Very much. Very much indeed.
Yes, well, since you've returned, I'll start tidying up a bit. A codger who looks like he's wearing a tuxedo under a set of gray canvas coveralls steps out of the elevator. It seems he was talking on a cell phone. Well, well. Were he the deductive sort, the Joker might begin to think that Batman is, in his quotidian life, a man of some means. Or else he hangs upside down around here somewhere, and the butler and all the goodies are paid for by nefarious concerns, whose names we might not wish to know. There is a time for deduction and a time for action. The Joker has a sudden sense that this is one of the latter sort. My good man! He springs out of the shadows, dusts himself off with all the panache of which he is capable, and displays his winningest smile. I have traveled far through the wastes of yonder cave. Oh dear me, is this guano? <laughs> and I seek your hospitality. Have you a room for the night? The old bugger takes it with aplomb. Give him credit for that. You scoundrel. And he pulls an actual gun from somewhere in his coveralls. A hundred of him would make one tough room, that's for sure. But there's only one, and the Joker closes the distance on him in a heartbeat. <laughs> It's not even three in the morning. He's been asleep for less than an hour after a second night rounding up escaped Arkham inmates. But he knows there will be no more sleep tonight. The dreams flee into the recesses of his mind as the doors of will and discipline come booming down behind them. What persists is a stray memory of the Gotham City Police Department filing room. When he was twenty, Bruce spent an afternoon looking at the police report from his parents' murder. Reading about the event, in the spare, impersonal idiom of the report, had a strangely cathartic effect on him. He wonders, in fact, if it was not that afternoon that broke him free of his adolescent self-pity and sent him off on the first of his travels to the East, where he traveled among men whose skill and ruthless devotion he aspired to match, where he became himself, or where Batman became himself, or where Bruce Wayne became Batman. If those three statements are anything more than semantic facets of the same single event. Bruce sits up, feeling the burnt skin on his legs stretch. It hurts, and he allows it to hurt for precisely as long as it takes for him to decide that he will no longer allow it to hurt. His mind is on the filing room, on the photographs, and the typescript reports, and the paper-clipped documents detailing the later death of Joe Chill. He has worried the event, gnawed at it, built walls around it, and then broken holes in the walls because he cannot stand to be without it, and in the process, perhaps, changed it? If he saw the photographs from the police report today, would they look like his memory? And why is he thinking of the filing room? He has an intuition that his subconscious is sending him a message, and he begins circling the idea. What message might be manifesting itself this way? Something about records, the past? His past, things he has done with or for or to the police, some of Batman's activities. He's not getting anywhere. It occurs to him that he hasn't seen or heard Alfred, who typically has an almost supernatural ability to appear with coffee and fruit at the exact moment Bruce is waking up. The sun has not yet risen, but Bruce often wakes before sunrise, especially when he dreams. And oddly, he dreams more often and more vividly following the exhaustion of pursuit. Anfer has escaped him twice now, once with the breakaway arm, and then last night by simply outrunning him. Bruce is beginning to feel that Enfer is going to be one of the difficult, consuming ones, like the Joker was. That thought snaps him fully into wakefulness. After the Arkham fire, he's going to need to find out who escaped, and also who was still at large after last night's second dragnet. Plus, there's Enfer to consider. <sighs> Bruce gets up and works through the slow physical routine he uses every morning. It's part calisthenics, part tai chi, part yoga, and part just wanting to break a sweat and get his blood circulating before the day really begins. He allows himself time for this because the routine sensitizes him to the state of his body, where it's strong and where it hurts. Once that picture is complete, he dresses and walks down the hall toward the computer lab he installed adjacent to Wayne Manor's old library. Alfred? No answer. Bruce doesn't worry about it. Alfred takes care of things, and he can't always be right there with coffee and orange juice, especially not at three in the morning. Veering away from the computer lab, Bruce goes downstairs and brews coffee himself.
Like the morning physical routine, this simple set of tasks is centering. He doesn't have to do it. With the number of zeros in the various Wayne accounts, Bruce Wayne doesn't strictly have to do anything except eat and breathe. But one of the lingering effects of his eastern sojourn is that Bruce has learned the value of the mundane. He's particularly comforted by the mundane this morning, after last night's all-you-can-eat smorgasbord of Gotham City lunatics. Speaking, or thinking of which, he needs to get the latest on Arkham survivors and escapees. The coffee's ready. Bruce takes the entire pot up to the computer lab. He's sitting in front of the terminal when he has second thoughts about using the Wayne Manor network to get at the information he routinely siphons out of GCPD headquarters. There's no good reason to mistrust his security arrangements, but he does anyway. He finds one of his cell phones in the pocket of his bathrobe and calls Alfred. Alfred Pennyworth. Alfred, when you hear this, please meet me in the wine cellar. Alfred, practical-minded as he is, originally questioned this wine cellar code on the grounds that at some point, Bruce might really want to meet him in the wine cellar. But it hasn't happened yet, and the truth is that Bruce can't figure out any possible reason why it might. So, wine cellar it is. And in any case, Alfred isn't answering his phone. Bruce has a passing worry about Alfred's health. He's getting up there, and as hale as he's always seemed, age is age. But he shrugs it off. If sunrise comes and goes with no sign of Alfred, then Bruce will worry. Until then, he'll sift through the communications from GCPD and see if he can't scare up Captain Gordon for a more recent Arkham update. The elevator to the cave runs from a utility closet behind Wayne Manor's kitchen. The car is big enough to drive a forklift into and turn it around if you're a skilled driver, which Bruce is. He's smiling a little at the memory of telling the crew that installed the elevator that he was building a bomb shelter. It'll be one more crazy Bruce Wayne story circulating around Gotham City, and that's so much the better. He could probably contract out more of the work on the cave, but he's already gotten a lot of concrete poured and rock blasted. What remains is finish work, and moving in the equipment he hasn't yet bought, or informally requisitioned from Lucius Fox's Techno Wonderland in the basement of Wayne Enterprises. Maybe, if the Arkham situation looks like it's finally under control, he can spend the day working in the cave before heading out after Enford tonight. When the elevator door opens, the hair on the back of Bruce's neck stands up. He steps out, scanning the cave, noting and cataloging everything that seems out of place. Things aren't where he left them, and the changes don't look like the sort of measured refinements Alfred tends to make. One of the things Bruce Wayne knows for certain is that Alfred would not have left a gun on the work table next to the lathe where Bruce machined small tools, such as his batarangs. It's Alfred's gun, though. Alfred! Bruce smells gunpowder. He walks to the gun, sniffs the muzzle, drops the clip, and counts the shells out on the work table. One shot fired. Reflexively, he scans the cave floor for blood, and when he doesn't see any, he walks in a widening circle until he's following the walls. Still, he sees no blood. But he does find the shell, and at the moment when he picks it up, Bruce finally realizes what it is he's been missing since he stepped out of the elevator. No. The car is gone. Back through, Bruce tells himself, miss nothing. He tears the cave apart, touching nothing but seeing everything. And at the end of five minutes, he knows what has happened as well as if he'd been there himself. Missing. The car. One Batman suit with cape. One utility belt with full complement of tools. One set of backup files from the central terminal. Several items from a small museum of gadgets collected from adversaries. One loyal friend. Relocated, formerly on the body of that loyal friend, and now hanging in place of the missing bat suit, one set of coveralls. Also relocated, formerly in the museum case, and now pinned to the lapel of those coveralls, the Ace of Spades. <sighs> Bruce plucks it free and turns it over in his fingers. Written on the back of the Ace of Spades, in handwriting Bruce knows all too well, is a jovially cryptic message. We have met the enemy, and he is us. Motion catches his eye, and Bruce turns to see a mouse on the floor of the cave. It runs in a narrowing spiral before finding what looks like a breadcrumb. The mouse takes the crumb, stashes it in one cheek, and begins another spiral, this time widening, 
until it finds a second crumb. Looking past it, Bruce sees a trail of the crumbs leading toward the back of the cave and the passage he left open for the bats. Alfred. All at once, he understands. July 30th, 3.37 a.m. <laughs> I thought I'd driven some nice cars, but this one takes the proverbial cake. And what would a proverbial cake look like? He imagines Moses coming down from the mountain with layer cakes in either hand. <laughs> what a car. Why, it stood out even in that fantabulously ritzy neighborhood where he emerged after skedaddling through the steel doors and up a concrete tunnel that led through a small cave mouth onto a dirt road. Who needs a custom Bentley when you've got the Batmobile? Head sure did turn. At least those heads that were awakened abroad in the middle of the night when he went tooling down those roads on the north side of the river. That part of town is not at all his typical haunt. Never has been. He's much more at home now, cruising north in the dying hours of night from downtown toward the little hideaway he put together in the East End, lo these many moons ago, before his little Arkham hiatus. It ought to still be there. No reason why it shouldn't. No one, to his knowledge, has entered that particular building on purpose in years, unless it was to indulge in a little recreational chemistry, which, as it happens, was his own reason for installing himself there. The building at one point housed an electroplating shop and a gaggle of other businesses whose function required a number of odd and wonderfully reactive substances, large amounts of which were abandoned in the basement when said businesses closed one by one during Gotham City's most recent cycle of depression, which, as it happens, coincided with his own transformative escapade at the Monarch Playing Card Factory. Thinking about all of it makes him feel a little holistic, unified and interconnected with this great steaming mess of a city and the great steaming mess of its denizens, some of whom are more messy and steaming than others, thanks to his unfamiliarity with the Batmobile's more specialized control mechanisms, and, well, let's not neglect to note his general depraved indifference to human life. Yo! Do people get out of the way when they see this set of wheels coming round the corner? Except the ones that don't. <laughs> now I know what they mean by breakneck speed! <laughs> he roars across the Sprang River and, suffering a belated attack of discretion, chooses the more abandoned of the East End's thoroughfares. They're all abandoned at this hour, really, but one takes one's caution where one finds it until he arrives at the empty six-story brick building whose basement contains his once and future laboratory. A crime laboratory, really, in a much more meaningful sense than the police facilities that bear the name. He wishes he could put a sign in one of the windows advertising his services. Well, no he doesn't, because who knows what kind of yahoos and miscreants might show up, wanting ridiculous and boring concoctions to kill their lovers or burn down their shabby storefronts for their insurance. Uh, that's not the light for me. The Joker rolls the Batmobile down the alley and parks it in front of the loading dock. To the left of the dock is a ground-level door that, if he has any luck at all, will still open when he finds the key between... Hmm. Aha! Those two bricks right there. He blows mortar dust off the key, opens the door, and dances across the dark shipping floor until he gets to the garage door on the other side of the dock. He has to kick it a couple of times to loosen the rust from the track. There we go. But it opens, and in a jiffy, he's got the Batmobile inside, the door locked behind it, and the bat cowl off his head. Whoever Batman is, he doesn't sweat, because if he did, he'd drown inside that thing. Hmm, I need a bat name. The floor stretches unbroken across the entire footprint of the building, interrupted only by steel support beams at code-mandated intervals. You could play football in here, if you didn't mind running into an I-beam once in a while. Ooh, a game. There's a thought. But first he needs a bat name, and he needs to replenish his repertoire. For that, he needs the lab that lies behind the bolted door at the other end of the room. Now, what has he done with that particular key? It couldn't be the same one that opens the outside door. 
He sweeps the bat cape about himself and strikes a thoughtful pose, then just as quickly abandons it when he realizes that it isn't doing him any good. The key, the key, the key, the key. Ah. There is, if he's recalling correctly, which is by no means certain, since the gentle ministrations of the good Dr. Crane have further scrambled the Joker's already precariously organized memory, a key in the fire extinguisher cabinet. If the local idiots haven't broken in and had some kind of Neanderthal fun with the fire extinguisher, it should still be there. Looking around, the Joker sees no evidence of intrusion during his year's absence. A stroke of good luck there. He finds the cabinet, opens it, and removes the key. Still more good luck. Now to the real crux of the matter, which is that he has a dim recollection of laying some variety of nefarious trap on the door. Exactly what variety is unclear to him. He thinks the key will bypass it, but there's no way to really know, is there? When one is trying to dredge up one's past, and said past is somewhat obscured by the intervention of Arkham-style therapies. Uh, what the hey? He turns the key, and is neither poisoned, nor incinerated, nor electrocuted. Perhaps, though, the trap is sprung not by turning the key, but by opening the door. Hmm, dear me. Horns of a dilemma. Once again, he suffers no consequence, beyond a disconcerting amount of dust agitated directly into his nostrils by the portal swinging open. Surely he would have done better trap-wise than that. Well, the benefits of good planning. Gathering the bat cape about him, he skips down the stairs and turns on the light at the bottom. Honey, I'm home! Even if the various assembled centrifuges and filtration systems and apparatuses for catalysis don't respond out loud, he can feel the warmth of their welcome. Home sweet home. And thanks to the prank he played back in Batman's cave, he'll have some time to get things done. The caped crusader, as one of the papers has dubbed Batman, will surely set about rescuing his loyal footman before resuming his crime fightery. The Joker flings the bat cape away and gets to work. Three hours later, he's feeling slightly better about his repertoire, and while certain of his favorite gags are given time to cool or mix or otherwise complete their preparation, he decides that it's really time to get serious about giving himself a bat name. Somewhere in the corner, under plastic sheeting, is a computer. The Joker fires it up and sets about learning a little something about the order Chiroptera, which it turns out means hand wing some of whose members were kind enough to lead him out of his subterranean post-escape travails. As it turns out, there are four families of bats native to North America. Vesper, Leaf-Nosed, Free-Tailed, and Ghost-Faced. <gasps> oh my. Obviously, he's from the Ghost-Faced family, but wait. The Latin family name for Ghost-Faced bats is Mormupidae? And the genus is Mormoops? He can't even say those words out loud. Can't even think them without. <laughs> oh, more moves. More moves. And the only thing holding his guts in is this marvelous bat suit. Or maybe he should call it a more moopa suit. More moopa suit. If he more says it enough times, moves, eventually it will no longer paralyze him. More moves. <laughs> more moves. Eventually. More moves. More moves. More moves. So be it. More moves. And the Latin for the species that will include him and only him? Of course. More moves. The ocular torus. <laughs> Steady. <laughs> he's inspired to do some research, almost. But he settles for walking down the street to get a newspaper. One of the problems with being recognizable is that he has to dress altogether too warmly for the current weather. Not that he would trade his enhanced existence for such mundane pleasure as wearing a wife beater and shorts. Quite the opposite. Still, he has pangs. All humor comes from pain. <laughs> the front page of the globe pressed against the glass of the newspaper dispenser even two days after the event, is all black background and orange fire. What's this? The fires spell out ha-ha. Mm. 
My guardian angel. Decidedly a mixed blessing. He didn't have to advertise me quite so brazenly. I'm more than capable of announcing my own presence. Nettled now, he takes a paper, the gazette machine is empty, and returns to the hidey hole. Hmm. It seems that whoever set these fires had as his goal the liberation of little old me. Hmm. Who is he? More importantly, why is he doing this? I don't like it. Being part of someone else's agenda is rarely part of the Joker's modus operandi. He must meet this person, this putative rescuer, and clarify the situation. First, though, there's the matter of setting the scene. He's recovered some of his toys from Batman's cave. Now that he's back in his laboratory, it's time to get the rest of his repertoire back up to speed. There are chemicals to synthesize, compounds to catalyze, lofty goals to realize! Avanti! Rehearsal is the invisible key to great performance. And the Joker believes it. <laughs> A glimmer of an idea is taking shape in his head, a tribute to Batman's worthy opposition. Imitation, after all, is the sincerest form of flattery, is it not? Oh, my. This will be good. Unless, of course, the elementary little trap he left back in the cave is too much for the bat. If that's how it plays out, it will be too bad, but it will also have been a sign that he has overestimated his adversary. And better to know that before he gets too invested in the relationship. I am a man of limited emotional resources. Best not to invest them unwisely. If Batman can't handle this little puzzle, I'll give my heart to another. He flings the newspaper up into the air and stands as the sheets flutter down around him, a cascade of ha-ha and immolated Gotham City. Suddenly, he's feeling competitive. Time to get back in the headlines, and I know just how to do that. But first, now that the sun is coming up and people are on the streets, how can I not take another ride in that wonderful car? Gotham Gazette Online. Bullseye, the video blog of Gotham Gazette columnist Rafael Del Toro. I try not to do this very often, but over the past few days, the spirit has moved me to embark on actual reporting, complete with phone calls and interviews. The reason for this is that my voicemail and email boxes are full to bursting with reports that at the Otisburg fire and the Arkham conflagration, a certain personage was observed acting in a highly suspicious manner. This person wears black, only comes out at night, and no, it's not Batman. We'll get to him later. An anonymous bullseye correspondent reports that this person, quote, was of average height and weight and wore what looked like a fireman's outfit. Or, to be politically correct, that's firefighter, if you please. Back to the quote. Only all in black. Hat, coat, big waiter-style boots, the whole works. Unquote. Anonymous reports seeing this person on top of the former Shulevitz Tannery building across the street from the Otisburg Tenement Fire. Shortly after the sighting, he... Or she, who says I'm not gender neutral, reports seeing this faux bravest chased off the rooftop by another black-clad nighttime provocateur, Batman. Other reports echo Anonymous's account. Witnesses of the 50-plus fire set in the aftermath of the Arkham Inferno reported seeing a man dressed in a black full-length coat of the type worn by firefighters with a patch on the left breast in the shape of an orange flame, as well as firefighter-style pants and boots. Reports differ on whether he was wearing a helmet. And yet more sightings of this latest addition to Gotham's abundant history of criminal lunatics describe him as wearing a bomb disposal suit. But the flame patch is constant. Hey, a villain's gotta brand himself, you know. And this one's apparently calling himself Enfer. Or should it be All Fell, since it's the French word for hell, and he's prone to quoting passages from the French poet Blaise Sondraux. <laughs> Get it? Blaise? Ah, oh, you costume villains kill me. So not only do we have a loony pyromaniac on our hands, we have a loony pyromaniac on our hands who calls himself Hell and hates firemen. And not only that, he's a Francophile. Huh. With any luck, he'll be inspired by the example of his beloved Republique Francaise, and he'll surrender as his definitive act of villainy. 
Until then, we'll rely on Batman. God help us. July 30th, 6.01 a.m. Bruce has followed the trail of breadcrumbs for what must be miles through the cave. He's barefoot and in his pajamas, carrying only a flashlight scooped up from the broken-into locker containing his tools, and he's berating himself silently for anything that comes to mind. Not sealing off that part of the cave, not knowing more about cave ecology so he can have a better idea of what else might be eating the breadcrumbs, not finishing the capture of escaped Arkham inmates, or at least he could have found out who was still missing. To have spent all of that energy chasing garden-variety lunatics when the Joker was loose again, unforgivable. By force of will, he changes his frame of mind. Recriminations are useless right now. After he finds Alfred, after he takes care of the Joker again, or Batman takes care of the Joker, after all of Enfer's fires are put out for good, then will come the time to assess and make the necessary changes. Right now, the clock is ticking. He's kept track of the breadcrumbs so far, but he's also seen more mice, and there's no way to know whether the trail will disappear before he gets to Alfred. Also, there's no way to know what awaits him when he does find Alfred. He's never intentionally killed anyone. Batman's never intentionally killed anyone. But that's going to change if Alfred... Again, he cuts off his train of thought. There are useful ifs, and there are ifs that become mental death spirals, draining valuable mental energy away from the problem at hand. Find Alfred first, then the next move will be clear. Focus. Ahead, the next breadcrumb, pinned in the flashlight's halogen beam. Each one is like a blaze on a forest trail. Bruce brackets it between his feet and scans until he finds the next. It crosses his mind that the Joker could be leading him not to Alfred, but to pursue the Hansel and Gretel metaphor straight to the witch's oven. He turns the thought over in his mind, then switches gears and turns it over in the Joker's mind. Unlikely. Bruce's assessment of his adversary is that the Joker would much prefer Batman to find Alfred and then experience the punchline. Whatever that's going to be, focus. The next breadcrumb is on a ledge, visible only when Bruce stands on tiptoe. Is the Joker taller than he is? He doesn't remember it that way, but it could be so. Or this could be a subtle upping of the stakes, removing the next clue from direct linkage to the previous. Bruce files this away and hoists himself up onto the ledge. There's a small seam there and a dead bat. He shines the flashlight into the seam and sees that it's big enough to get through, but not by much. How the Joker got Alfred through there is an interesting question. If he did, a skeptical part of Bruce's mind, or Batman's mind, chimes in, but Bruce ignores it. The Joker is stronger than your average human. That much was obvious on the night of the near-catastrophe at the reservoir. But Bruce isn't sure if he's strong enough to have dragged Alfred through a cave tunnel, barely large enough to get through on hands and knees which could mean that Alfred was conscious and proceeding under his own power, at least during this part of the abduction. Bruce gets his head and shoulders into the tube, pushing the flashlight ahead of him. It must be nearly dawn. A hundred yards or so later, there's still no breadcrumb, and Bruce is weighing his options. Go back and see if there was another crumb visible from the ledge, or assume that the next one lies at the end of this tunnel. The question answers itself when he realizes that he can't turn around. Onward, then. A few minutes later, the tunnel corkscrews up and ends in a depression in the floor of a large room. A drain, Bruce imagines. Millions of years ago, when the river was 200 feet higher, and he'd have had to be a fish to get this far. He wonders how far from the surface he is now. His sense of direction, challenged by the cave but still operative, pegs him a mile or so west-southwest of Wayne Manor which would mean that he's still hugging the edge of the bluffs overlooking the North Channel, which separates the suburbs from Gotham City proper. Either the surface or a cliff face outlet can't be too far away, which increases the likelihood that animals from above travel in this part of the cave, hunting the albino fauna native to its passages and chambers. Many of them would be happy with breadcrumbs instead of eyeless crickets. Bruce shines the flashlight around covering first the floor, then the visible surfaces of any ledges and protruding rocks, then the crevices between stalagmites. <sighs> no breadcrumbs. He goes over every square inch of the room, discovering four outlets, but still no breadcrumbs. He feels his heart rate increasing, and his mind once again is turning to murderous thoughts. 
If this is the game Gotham's villains are going to play, then perhaps Gotham City is no place for a paladin. What it needs instead might be reprisals of the sort that Carmine Falcone would understand. And there, Bruce reels himself back in. The day that he's on the same wavelength as Carmine Falcone is the day that he goes back to being the so-called billionaire playboy full-time. Again he plays the flashlight over every surface in the room. He discovers deposits of guano, several eyeless spiders, a number of remarkable gypsum flowers, and not a single breadcrumb. Not even a footprint or drag mark that would indicate human passage, except his own barefoot trail and a chaotic swirl up and down the rugged perimeter of the room. A test. The Joker is upping the stakes, but he'll want the joke to pay off, so there's got to be an answer. He's about to begin a third circuit with a flashlight. Master Bruce. Bruce snaps to attention and turns off the flashlight on the off chance that the loss of vision will improve his hearing. Alfred? Light on. Bruce's reflex is to tell Alfred to speak up, but there must be some reason for the whispering. He switches the flashlight back on, and as he does so, figures out what Alfred is doing. Alfred? I'm going to show the light down each way out of this room. Tell me which is the right one. Not waiting for an answer, he tracks around the perimeter one more time, pausing at the visible exits in case Alfred responds. The third one is an esophageal passage descending from the north side of the room. Yes! Bruce plunges into the passage. It's so steep that he has to go in feet first, and at times he's chimneying before he puts his feet on solid ground again. Stop! The light from the flashlight falls on Alfred. And Bruce sees the punchline. Alfred stands in the center of the room, stripped to his underwear, an expression of exhausted dread on his face. Around his neck is strung a lay of flowers, taken from the museum locker. Bruce recognizes those flowers. The Joker used them to murder a group of lawyers planning a case against one of his associates back before the reservoir business. Motion activated, they release a lethal dose of what Gazette reporters called Joker juice. Even Alfred's whispers have provoked a small puff of vapor from the one nearest his mouth. Alfred screws his eyes shut and holds his breath, while the slow circulation of the cave air gradually moves the vapor away. Bruce watches and holds the flashlight on Alfred's face, until he is certain that the vapor has dissipated. Breathe, Alfred, but quietly. Alfred shoots Bruce a look that tells him that the qualifier wasn't necessary. Even faced with agonizing death, Alfred is master of the butler's subtle rebuke. So, here's the punchline. Bruce can't move to take the flowers off, and sooner or later, Alfred will collapse, triggering them. For a moment, Bruce is tempted to look around for a hidden camera, although there's no way the Joker would have had time to gather the resources during his flight from Arkham. The question of the Joker's resourcefulness, however, is thrown wide open by the fact that, while on the run from every cop in Gotham City, he somehow managed to stumble through the caves that riddle the bluffs over and apparently the bedrock below the North Channel to find the one way into the cave. There's no way it could have been anything but an accident, but Bruce Wayne has trained himself not to believe in accidents, and he takes it as a lesson in his failure to anticipate adequately all of the possible ramifications of using the cave. Now, though, the problem is how to get Alfred out. The only way I can think of to do this is just to do it. On my signal, you hold your breath and shut your eyes. And I'll get them off you as fast as I can. It won't work. He knows it won't work. But he will be damned, literally, if he's going to watch Alfred die before his eyes and not try to do something about it. Alfred is stock still, but Bruce can see in his eyes that he doesn't want Bruce to take this desperate chance. All the arguments rehearse themselves in Bruce's head. Gotham needs you. What good will it do if in trying to save Alfred you kill yourself? And so on. Behind them, there lurks the question of what exactly the Joker plans to do with all the Batman regalia and gadgetry that he's stolen from the cave. There is an awful calculus to be performed when the saving of one life might require the sacrifice of another. Bruce is performing it now and rejecting the results. If he can walk away from his oldest friend, he isn't the man he thought he was, and walking away would extinguish Batman, as surely as the Joker juice will leave Alfred cold on the cave floor with a death-set grimace. And would that be such an awful thing to be free of Batman? Revulsion as much as resolve spurs Bruce into a lunge across the ten feet of rugged limestone that separates him from Alfred. Several things happen at once. Alfred's face pinches shut. Bruce's right hand clamps over Alfred's nose and mouth. Bruce's body bears Alfred to the floor. The flowers begin to spew their lethal gas. 
and the cave is suddenly full of bats. A torrent of tiny bodies washes over Bruce and Alfred. The hiss of the flowers mingles with the bat wings, and the main bulk of the colony arrives. Bruce's eyes are burning. He wants more than anything else in the world to vomit. More than anything, that is, except to survive and to keep Alfred alive. He can feel the Joker juice crawling in his nostrils, burning in his tear ducts, stinging the corners of his mouth. But he will not let it in. Alfred flashes in his grasp, and Bruce fills with slow horror as he realizes that he might, in his blindness, be feeling the death throes of the one man who has kept his life together. No, he denies this. He refutes it. The bats are gone, or at least the sound of them is. Bruce realizes he's been counting in his head and come to 90. He opens his eyes and does not die. He takes a breath and does not die. He looks down at Alfred, seen in the oblique glow of the flashlight's beam, and realizes that although Bruce Wayne is more than capable of holding his breath for a minute and a half, Alfred is not. Oh no. He takes his hand away from Alfred's face. Alfred does not move. No. Bruce drops his face to Alfred's, breathing life back into him, while all around him, bats are fluttering out, the last of their lives. He breathes and compresses Alfred's old man's chest, and breathes and does it again. And for the first time in years, Bruce Wayne loses track of time. Position. Alfred's face is pale, but mottled with dark blotches. His eyes are streaming, and when he looks up at Bruce, his lips are fighting the impulse to peel back in a poisoned rictus. Come on, Alfred. Alfred's eyes focus, and the grin falters. He tries to speak. He needs to get his blood moving, flush the toxins away. Walk with me, Alfred. They walk together in small circles, crushing beneath their bare feet the bodies of bats. Bruce looks down at them and sees their lips peel back from their teeth. The bats saved them. The rush of their passage cleared the Joker juice, and the bats died, and Alfred and Bruce did not. At least not yet. Alfred, we're going back to the cave. I need you to stay with me. Can you do that? <laughs> Alfred's grin is terrifying. Come on. Of the trip back through the cave, Bruce will recall very little. The unemotional steel surface of Batman's psyche fails him and allows the agonized turbulence of Bruce Wayne to boil up and obscure the journey in a veil of fear and recrimination. Most cruelly, hope. All Bruce knows at the end is that he's back in the cave and his body is ringing with exhaustion. And Alfred is limply staggering next to him, his head down. Bruce lays Alfred on his back on the same table where a few nights before, Alfred was dressing Bruce's burns. About time Bruce gave his old friend something back. Long past time. He tears open the medicine chest built into the rack of cabinets at one end of the long work table, finding a vial of adrenaline. Either it will give Alfred a heart attack and finish with the Joker's poison started, or it will get his heart pumping and finish the job of purging the toxin from his system. Another difficult calculus, and one Bruce wishes did not have so many variables. It does, though, and he's made his choice. He draws the clear serum from the vial, finds a spot between Alfred's ribs just to the left of his sternum, and plunges the needle home. <laughs> Alfred jerks up into a sitting position. His eyes fly open and his jaw drops. Veins bulge in his neck and forehead. For an interminable moment, Bruce lives with the knowledge that he has killed his last remaining link to his father. <sighs> Alfred falls back.
back onto the table. Bruce cradles his head. He has no words. And Alfred's eyes are wide and unfocused. Bruce can feel Alfred's pulse fluttering unevenly in his neck. After a while, he lets Alfred's head sink back to the table. Alfred, if you're dead, tell me now so I can stop hoping. A ghost of a smile deepens the wrinkles at the corners of Alfred's mouth. A real smile. I'm alive. <laughs> Despite your best efforts, Master Bruce. July 30th, 1157 AM. Anfer is coming out of Finnegan's at about noon, having indulged in a couple of zesty bombs, and as a result feeling pretty good about the universe and his place in it, when he sees Batman's car come screaming around the corner and without even slowing, crush a young woman and her dog. The shock of this event reverberates within Enfer, the way great shocks always do. Time slows to a crawl, and he becomes intensely, even painfully, sensitive to every detail of his surroundings. He smells caramel corn from a street vendor. He hears the screams of pedestrians. He feels the roar of the engine, and can almost feel the vibrations of the car's tires as they come out of their skid and find their purchase on the asphalt of Cowan Street. And the sounds and vibrations momentarily make Enfer feel as if he's an engine too. He wants to rev up, get started, finish the plan that Jonathan Crane conceived, but could not imagine in its true dimensions. He must be drunk. When did that happen? As the car passes him, he sees that the passenger side window is down a crack, and hears something strange from within. Realization dawns, and when he glimpses the grinning figure behind the wheel, Enfer runs aground on a mental reef of sheer amazement. He can't quite decide whether he's hallucinating or he's really observing the Joker in full Batman regalia mowing down pedestrians in downtown Gotham City. That's big time! Suddenly he's recharged, newly resolute in his ambition to make his mark on Gotham City. Not that he hasn't already, in the literal sense of the city blocks that are freshly burned out as a result of his previous enterprises, but the truth is that setting a fire all by itself is, let's face it, kind of ordinary. He's got scale, that's for sure. And the ha-ha gag was brilliant, if he does say so himself. But the Joker has upped the stakes. We've got to get together! Enfer wants the Joker to know what he's done. A scheme like the Arkham Breakout deserves a little acclaim. A crowd gathers around the woman, and suddenly people go running off in all directions. Others come to see what all the fuss is about. What Enfer needs to do is smoke Batman out now, while he doesn't have all his toys. Mano a mano, just Enfer and him. We'll find out if he's so tough when he doesn't have the gadgets to hide behind. At the same time, Enfer also thinks that he just might be able to kill two birds with one stone. What if he can draw both of them, the real and fake Batman? The way to do it would be to convince each of them that the other will be there. And that can't be that hard, can it? Except it won't work if anyone else saw who was really driving the car. Enfer must get involved. Did you see that? Batman just ran over that girl! And her dog! Batman! Enfer grabs the person nearest him. That son of a bitch! I saw him right through his open window! He ran that girl down! And Enfer keeps right on blaming Batman to anyone who will listen, and most of those who won't, until the police arrive two minutes later, and he can tell them all about it. His insistence sends a current through the crowd, and pretty soon they're ready to lynch Batman on sight. Perfect. Before Enfer walks away down the street, he's talked to five cops and three reporters. One of them, the hottie who seems to get a lot of the Batman stories, and he really regrets having to duck away from the photographers and insist that his name not be used. Even in the middle of performance euphoria, you've got to play things smart. Plus, it's time to get back to the hidey hole, flesh out the details. The Joker has set the bar high, but he's not the only one who can make a plan work. The first thing he does after locking the door behind him is remove the prosthetic arm. It's an ordinary piece of plastic and metal, and the straps chafe his neck. He's done much better work himself, but wearing a more or less off-the-rack arm when he's in public during the day makes him feel like he's invisible. 
He tosses the arm on a sway-backed couch he rescued from an abandoned plastic surgery practice around the corner, and as he wanders around his lair, Enfer considers what he's seen today. The Joker is big league, that's for sure. To actually get into Batman's Sanctum Sanctorum and make off with a car and a suit? Set the bar high. Enfer goes to the locker where he keeps his working arms. They're different from the standard prosthesis he wears as part of his mundane camouflage, each designed for a specific purpose. He's got another one, like the little bomb he surprised Batman with the other night. He's got a couple that are built around a pump and nozzle system that can be primed with a number of different flammable substances, and he's got one that's specifically designed to let him handle superheated substances. Next to them hang a number of prototypes and partial designs, including the Creeper. That's the one he's really dying to try out. His arm is sore today. The phantom pain worse than it's been since right after he lost the physical arm. I'm the man who doesn't have a past. Only my stump hurts. The poet's words get Enfer's feet back on the ground. Rubbing the stump, even though he knows it doesn't help, Enfer bounces on the balls of his feet, so electrified by ambition that he's not sure how to start realizing it. But ambition's gotten him into trouble before. He needs to slow down. He's looking at his fire helmet. His fire helmet. Once, he could walk the streets without a fake arm and a fake self. Every time he has that thought, he's gone into himself, and this time is no different. He's six years old at his grandparents' cabin far away in Vermont. It's just before sunrise, and he's sitting on the hearth rug, a blanket around his shoulders and the fireplace poker in his hands. It's heavy, but he stirs it through the coals of last night's fire until the glow brightens on the underside of the log he's already put in. He leans forward and blows, long and steady, eyes unblinking. Whoa! Until the log blooms with yellow flame. He's nine, building a toy skyscraper from a bucket full of plastic girders that snap together. A vision comes into his head, and he rearranges one of the skyscraper's towers, but he can't get the angle right. None of the girders is exactly the right length. He goes to the kitchen drawer and finds a book of matches. His mistake is to hold the girder at an angle while he melts one end down. The molten plastic runs down the length of the girder and sears his pinky finger. The pain is so encompassing and unlike anything else he can ever remember feeling that it breaks through a barrier in his mind. He's 13, and furious at having broken one of the forward gun turrets of a plastic model of the battleship Bismarck. His parents are gone. He takes the model out into the garage and sets it on his father's tool bench. There are three gas cans lined up on the bottom shelf of one of the steel storage units against one wall. He picks the one marked bad because his father doesn't keep good track of how much is in it, and he pours slowly through a hole in the Bismarck's deck until there's half an inch or so of gasoline sloshing in the gray hole. But he's getting ahead of himself. He goes back into the house, finds a pack of firecrackers, and with care, works one loose from the long fuse that ties all of them together. With that single black cat and a book of matches, he always has a book of matches now, he returns to the garage. The city keeps saying they're going to pave the road that runs past his house, but they keep not doing it. And last night's rain has filled one of the bigger potholes with maybe eight inches of water. He sets the Bismarck afloat in the puddle, and works the firecracker about halfway down through the hole left when he broke the gun turret off. He waits for the match flame to settle into a steady burn and lights the fuse. Another wall in his mind comes down in a black threaded ball of fire and a shower of gray plastic fragments. He's 27 and utterly drunk on the smell of paint thinner. Patience, he tells himself. It's his first time trying a time delay device. Three, two, one. There it is, a glow from behind a stack of pallets up against the side of a lumberyard warehouse. He checks his watch and congratulates himself. Right on time. He heads down to the station, hoping he'll get there before the first call comes in. He's 32 and craning to see the fire across the street. But it's hard to move his neck that way, because Batman is kneeling on the small of his back, 
No, he's trying to say, there's someone in there. This is the one where he took the step he's been trying not to take. Anyone can set a fire, and anyone in the fire department can set a fire and then be part of the company that responds to it. According to what he's read, and he's read quite a bit on the topic, torching an inhabited building is the inevitable next step, the one that lets the arsonist play hero. Enfer, he wasn't calling himself that yet, but that's the way he remembers it now, doesn't shy away from that term, arsonist. It's as good a description as any. And he doesn't shy from the descriptions of people like him as disturbed or sociopathic or pathologically self-aggrandizing. That's a certain perspective that he understands, although of course he doesn't share it. He's different, that's for sure. Right now all he wants to do is get this black-caped nutcase off his back so he can get in there and pull the night watchman out. And maybe the homeless guy who beds down under the back stairs, if he's there. Listen! Ow! Before he can say anything, Batman wraps him on the back of the head. Talk later. Enfer's arms are twisted behind him. This comes from across the street. And just like that, the weight is gone from his back. He rolls onto his side and sees Batman looking at him with disgust etched in the lines around his mouth. You better hope I get there in time. He's 33 and laying in a complicated series of charges in an open-air chemical storage facility known only to international arms dealers and close observers of satellite images. The scrubby near desert of North Africa stretches away in every direction reminding him of Arizona. Just after he joined the fire department, he went to a series of training exercises in Arizona, part of some kind of interdepartmental exchange. It's a place he wouldn't mind visiting again, but those plans will have to wait because he can't go to the United States under his own name anymore. It's been six months since he split on his court date back in Gotham City. Having taken his particular combination of interest and expertise to a group of discreet individuals who thought he might be an asset to them. Intensive training in demolitions and incendiaries followed, and now he earns an excellent and tax-free salary, making things go boom. It's a good life. Definitely worth being run out of the fire department and humiliated, although he's not lying to himself. If he ever gets a chance to put his new skills to work on the GCFD, he's going to. Nothing wrong with holding a grudge. This particular job concerns large amounts of unstable and toxic substances left behind after the assassination of one of those erratic geniuses who finds a home in the arms trade. Enfer doesn't much care about the local politics involved, and he doesn't have any clear idea of what he's blowing up. He lays the charges, shaping them so their force will be directed inward. No sense blasting the stuff all over the landscape so it can poison local tribesmen for the next hundred years. To make sure he gets all of it, he seeds smaller charges in the center of the depot and times them to go off a tenth of a second after the perimeter detonations. That ought to do it. Sweating in his blast suit, he sets the last of the slave switches, keyed to the master he's got back in the jeep about 500 yards away. He glances over his shoulder at it and sees one of his local liaison party leaning in the passenger's door. They're always stealing his cigarettes. Except this time, they're not. He has the flash of insight and the flash of fear. No! And then the perimeter charges go off and the blast wave crushes him down into an infinitely dense plasma. He goes blind and feels his eardrums blow out. He can't breathe. He can smell though. And the acrid smell of vaporizing chemicals burns its way down into his lungs. A similar burning spreads across his skin and down inside him. If he could move, he'd look down at his suit but he already knows it's failed him. The central charges follow. And the one closest to him takes his right arm off, just below the shoulder. He's on the ground, and either he's opened his eyes or his vision has come back. Whichever it is, he's seen colors above him that he never knew existed, and he's got a taste in his mouth unlike anything he can name. He's on fire can see the flames playing about his body, dipping into and out of the holes in the suit. The overpressure is starting to lessen, and lying on his back, he watches the superheated swirl of vapor and smoke and fire. His ears are screaming now, and he screams with them.
That still happens once in a while, when his metabolism really gets revved up. His sweat isn't what you would call highly flammable, but it does burn. While he was recovering in a tent hospital financed by his employer and staffed by people who wore burnouses and spoke French, once in a while a change in the weather would fill his bedding with static, and when he rolled over, tiny bursts of fire like solar flares arced out from his body. Sometimes when he snaps his fingers, the action strikes sparks. Because of this, he hasn't owned a car in some time, not because the eruptions harm him, but because the cars get wrecked. Also, living in Gotham City doesn't require a car, and let's face it, he spent the first part of his most recent Gotham residency under the care of Dr. Jonathan Crane. For this, he blames his former employers, who sent him to Crane for what they termed reassimilation therapy, by which he assumes they meant they wanted Crane to tinker with his head until he could pass for normal in regular society again. They might easily have just gotten rid of him, but clearly they think his transmogrification might be of some future use, so they stowed him away in Arkham Asylum while they figured out what to do. At least he got a free arm out of it, and when Crane heard a little more about Enfer's situation, he guided his patient in the direction of a certain poet as a way for him to form a healthy identification with a survivor of a similar situation. Then he suggested that they might collaborate on a decisive effort to rid Gotham City of its nocturnal paladin. Enfer agreed, but only if he could even the score with the fire department too. By then he had adopted his new name, learned some French, used some of his remaining salary and some of Arkham's outdated home economics equipment to outfit himself, and begun tinkering with some of the incendiary experiments that have paid off so handsomely during the last few days. The doctor assented, and that was that. At least that's what Jonathan Crane thought. Enfer had good parenting and was taught not to gloat, but in this case he can't help it. All of this in 18 months, give or take. Enfer imagines addressing Batman. When I was a hero and wore a badge, you were nobody. Wheel of Fortune goes round and round, and I am on the way up.